Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, March 12th, uh, 2024. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Coming up uh, later on in the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast, we will be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the failure of the western back regime in the North African state of Libya to hold a much-awaited national election some 12 years after the counter-revolution that overthrew Colonel Muammar Gaddafi and the Jemahaya. There are reports of further instability in the northwest region of Nigeria. We'll have details on that as well. And several villages are reporting attacks in the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And a Russian diplomat has dismissed allegations by Ukraine that Moscow is unwilling to negotiate an end to the war. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on International Women's History Month uh, with a reexamination of the lifetimes and contributions of Anna Julia Cooper, an educator, writer, and early Pan-Africanist. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude with the music of Shala Moana from her release uh, during the 1980s. Let's listen in.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the voice and music of Shala Mugana uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. The United Nations envoy to Libya, Abdullahi Batili. Uh, called uh, yesterday uh, for the rival administrations in the country to reach an agreement by the middle of June and hold long-delayed elections by the end of the year. Libya remains split uh, between a nominally interim government in Tripoli in the west of the country and another in the east uh, backed by military uh, strongman and CIA operative Khalifa Haftar. Since the uh, 2011 uh, United States and NATO-backed counter-revolution against the former government of Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, a veteran statesman and pan-Africanist. The once uh, most prosperous uh, country in Africa has become a source for instability throughout North and West Africa. By mid-June, it will be possible for them, after having sat for a few weeks, to come to an agreement on those election laws, uh, give them to the High National Election Commission, uh, which will be on the basis of this to put up a clear roadmap because the roadmap is not up uh, to me to design it, uh, said uh, UN Envoy Abdullahi Batile uh, yesterday uh, during a press conference in the capital of Tripoli. The head of the Tripoli government, uh, Prime Minister Abdel Hamid Beba, uh, expressed his support for the United Nations Envoy's efforts 
calling for, quote, fair and impartial elections, unquote. And from what we know, uh, it would be possible if the electoral laws are put in place in mid-June by the end of the year to have these elections to take place, concluded uh, the U.N. envoy. The U.N. initiative uh, has been backed uh, by Western powers, but it is criticized by the administration supported by Hapa in the East, as well as by Russia, uh, which uh, has given some support uh, to the Haftar forces. A key factor in the stalemate is in, in the fact that Haftar is a U.S. citizen. His rivals want rules that ban the candidacy of dual citizens and military figures. And in other news uh, taking place on the African continent, in the West African state of Nigeria, gunmen killed at least 16 people during an attack in northwest uh, sections of the country. That's according to a government uh, report earlier today. The assailants stormed the Zangong Katap local government area in Kaduna State and opened uh, fire yesterday after a confrontation with police at a checkpoint. Uh, Yabo Ifrahim, a spokesperson for the local government, told the international media. Authorities imposed a curfew in the area after the attack. The attackers were ethnic Fulani, a group of mostly nomadic pastoralists who have been embroiled in a long conflict with farmers over limited access to water and land. Uh, Ifrim said that before the shootings, a fight uh, had broken out between some villages and a small group of Fulani men. The latter left the scene and later returned in larger numbers with guns and machetes. The government spokesman uh, said they were strategically stationed at certain places and began to open fire in the community. Uh, they chased them even right into their homes. Wherever you are hiding, uh, they will shoot you, Ephraim added. Such attacks are not rare in Nigeria, especially in the country's hard-hit north. The pastoral conflict has evolved into various armed groups carrying out acts of violence, defying government and security measures for years. On Sunday, young people in the Umban Wakiri community, where Saturday's attack took place, protested the killings and accused Nigerian soldiers of failing to stop the violence despite being in the area at the time. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, Islamic State Group has issued a statement claiming a responsibility for killing more than 35 people and wounding dozens in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. In the statement uh, posted uh, Friday by IMR, the militants news agency, it said it killed Christians with guns and knives and destroyed their property in Makondi village in North Kivu province. It also published a photo of the houses on fire. The announcement comes after local authorities confirmed that at least 45 people were killed last week in several attacks on different villages by rebels from the allied democratic forces or militia uh, with links to the Islamic State. Conflict has been simmering in eastern Congo for decades as more than 120 armed groups fight for power, influence, and resources, and some to protect their communities. The ADF has been largely active in North Kivu province, uh, but has recently extended its operations into neighboring Ituri province and to areas near the regional capital of Goma. Efforts to stem the violence against the ADF have yielded little. A nearly year-long joint operation by Uganda 
and the DRC's armies did not achieve the expected results of defeating or substantially weakening the group, uh, said a report in December by a panel of United Nations experts. The ADF rebels are accused by the United Nations and rights groups of maiming, raping, and abducting civilians, including children. Earlier this month, the United States offered a reward of up to $5 million for information that could lead to the capture of the group's leader, Seka Musa Baluku. Thursday, uh, journalists saw bodies lowered into a mass grave in Makondi. Community members shoveled dirt over the bodies against a backdrop of destroyed houses and said the government wasn't doing enough to protect them. And uh, finally, um, the Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman, Mariah Zakharova, has slammed her Ukrainian counterpart, Dmitry Kolobov, statement that uh, Moscow is reluctant to negotiate the crisis settlement with Kiev as a, quote, colossal lie, unquote. These days, Kuliba uh, was once again ranting and raving in interviews with the Italian newspapers, Republica and Stampa. He called those Italians who are standing for settling the conflict with Russia through talks rather than in the battlefield hypocrites. In his interpretation, this point of view is nothing but a wish of defeat to his country and its non-existence. Not peace, but rest in peace on Ukraine's grave, she wrote on Telegram's channel. However, he seems to share the opinion that there is always room for talks, but says he sees no willingness for them in Russia, a colossal lie, bearing in mind the fact that it is the regime he represents that has banned such talks with Russia and its laws. That's according to uh, the Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman, Mariah Zakharova. Moreover, in uh, his words, uh, Kuleba forecasted, quote, the end of Europe if Ukraine is defeated, unquote. An optimist. Current shape, uh, Europe ended right when the European Union let Washington govern its political institutions and ultimately surrendered to NATO, uh, according uh, to the Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website uh, at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, March uh, the 12th, uh, 2023, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast 
for this week. I can't sleep at night. I can't eat a bite. Cause the man I love, he don't treat me right. He makes me feel so blue. I don't know what to do. Sometimes I said he'd die And then began to cry He went away And never even said goodbye There's a change In the ocean Change in the deep blue sea My baby I'll tell the world there Ain't no Changing me. My love for that man will always be. Now I got the Harlem blues. Since my man went away, I ain't got no time to. I do like the Chinaman Bay calling hop. Gonna stand on the corner, gonna blow my top. Since my love has been refused, now I got the Harlem blues. Harlem, Harlem. Now she's got the Harlem blues. Live 
from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, March is International Women's History Month, and uh, we're going to continue our programming this week uh, with a reexamination of the lifetimes and contributions of Anna Julia Cooper, uh, who lived between 1858 and 1964. Uh, this is a lecture uh, that was uh, done uh, recently at Hilldale College, uh, talking about the role of Anna Julia Cooper in the advancement of what is known as liberal education uh, inside the United States. Uh, let's listen to uh, this lecture. I am Benjamin Couch Payne. I'm a project officer with the Barney Charter School Initiative, and I'm also one of the founding members of the Anna Julia Cooper Public Charter School effort here in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Alan P. Kirby Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship, which is the campus of Hillsdale College in our nation's capital. Hillsdale was founded in 1844 with a mission to furnish all persons who wish, irrespective of race, religion, or gender, a liberal arts education, specifically aimed at developing the minds and improving the hearts of its pupils. The man standing right over here, um, knowingly or not, uh, set all the events in motion to have us here this evening, um, and he can also sing. <laughs> so as a result, I'm, I'm not going to waste any more time. This is uh, Mr. Roger Moss, Jr., accompanied by Hillsdale College Jr., Lorena Clements, on the piano, performing a piece composed by Margaret Bonds with lyrics from a poem by Langston Hughes, which is The Negro Speaks of Rivers.
And with that, I officially welcome you to the second annual symposium on liberal arts education and African-American history, a tribute to Anna Julia Cooper. And now I turn it over to the co-founder of this event, Mr. David Witten. Good afternoon. Right. Um, so since we're ultimately talking about the classics, why don't we start this afternoon and, and see how many people have been practicing their Latin. Ready? Salwete. Ooh, I've got a few. About, uh, about kairete. I got one, kaire. There we go. It's hello in Latin and in Greek. Um, okay, so I'm, I am David Withen. Um, I am currently, I'm an English instructor at uh, Savannah Technical College, and I have the great privilege of moderating tonight, and I want to start by thanking all the people who made uh, this afternoon, I keep saying this night, but this afternoon possible, uh, starting with Mr. Benjamin Payne. Um, he won't admit it, but he did most of the work to get this together. Um, it, everything that we're doing today, uh, it, it started, in, in fact, in front of an elevator uh, in the school that he and I uh, used to teach, or I used to teach at, and he used to be the director of, uh, when he stopped me in front of the elevator after I had spoken at a conference somewhere far away from Savannah, and he said, you know, that kind of thing, you, you would get this if you know Mr. Payne, by the way. He, said, he leaned in and he said, you know, that thing you do, we should do that here. I said, okay. So we wrote the grants and called the people and were able to have uh, the first annual symposium on liberal education and African-American history last year in Savannah, Georgia, uh, and that was for um, William Sanders Scarborough, who uh, I hope, uh, and if you don't know, I, ho I hope that you will learn about him if you do know, outstanding. Um, and we had Dr. Michelle Ronick and uh, uh, Dr. Patrice Rankin of the University of Richmond and uh, Dr. Michael Benjamin. Uh, it was an outstanding event. So we decided that we had to do it again this year, and, uh, and it, it had to happen, and, how, and I, I don't, I, I'm not a, a, superstition, uh, a superstitious person, but I knew that it had to happen because everything that could go wrong along the way went wrong along the way, and yet I'm still standing here right now, uh, including even today when uh, Mr. Moss and I had spent three hours um, sitting at the airport uh, while American Airlines did some paperwork to get our, our plane <laughs> off of the ground. Uh, so we've had quite the experience. So uh, please, a round of applause for Mr. Benjamin Payne before we get started. Of course, I also want to thank our sponsors because tonight or this afternoon would not have happened without them as well. Uh, the Society for Classical Studies Classics Everywhere Initiative, 
the Classical Association of the Middle West and South, their Committee for the Promotion of Latin, the Classical Association of the Atlantic States, uh, of course, where we are right now, the Allen P. Kirby Junior Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship. Uh, they all provided the means by which we could make this happen. Uh, and so uh, thank you very, very much to all of them. Um, I also want to acknowledge some of our, our guests tonight. So we've met uh, Mr. Roger Moss and myself and uh, Mr. Payne. Um, I do want to thank, of course, our speakers, and I'll introduce each of them individually, but uh, Dr. Shirley Moody-Turner, who is uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, we'd like to say thank you and welcome to her. Uh, Dr. Cara Olivia Heron, who is uh, from Howard University, also will be speaking tonight, and I'll, again, I'll introduce each of them uh, in, a in a little bit more detail. Um, I also want to uh, acknowledge Dr. Mike uh, Morica, who is the head of the Anna Julia Cooper Episcopal School in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and some of the students from that school provided, and I want to make sure I'm touching the right one, I provided this, uh, this uh, collage of Anna Julia Cooper. Uh, so thank you for being here tonight, and thank you for having your students do this. Can I please get a round of applause? <laughs> Outstanding work. Um, I'm also pleased to say my wife, unfortunately, could not be here tonight. She is Vanessa Withen, though, and she has done, um, oh, well, she's, she, is, she has gotten me together, uh, and so that, that's a good start. Uh, but she also, uh, among her many talents, is an artist, and she painted uh, this uh, oil painting of Anna Julia Cooper specifically for this event, and so I want to thank her as well. If we could get a, a round of applause. She can hear you in Savannah, I hope. Um, <laughs> Um, all right, well, let's turn to our first speaker, uh, and that is Dr. Shirley Moody-Turner, who is uh, going to speak to us tonight about the education of the underprivileged, Anna Julia Cooper's commitment to transformative education in our nation's capital. Uh, to give you a little bit of background, and I, I have it on my phone, I'm, I, I, uh, I'm one of those people. Uh, it is uh, Dr. Shirley Moody-Turner is a scholar, educator, and writer who has been conducting research and teaching on the life, writings, and work of Anna Julia Cooper for almost two decades. She was first, she was first introduced to Cooper's writings as a graduate student and found particular resonance and inspiration in Cooper's stated devotion to, quote, the education of the underprivileged. Uh, Moody Turner is the author of Black Folklore and the Politics of Racial Representation, in which she examines Cooper's relationship to early black folklore studies, and she has published widely, lectured, and given interviews on the reach and continued significance of Cooper's work. She is the co-founder of the Anna Julia Cooper Society, the founding director of the Cooper Du Bois Mentoring Program, and in 2017, she worked with the Moreland Spinger and Research Center uh, at Howard University to create the Anna Julia Cooper Digital Collection. She is an associate professor of English and African American Studies at Penn State University and is currently a fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University, where she is completing her next book, privately printed, Anna Julia Cooper, and the gender politics of black publishing. So let's please welcome Dr. Shirley Moody-Turner. Thank you. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Okay. No? Okay. See, I knew someone. Let me know. 
Okay, how's that? It's better? Okay. Um, first of all, I, I just want to say thank you to Benjamin as well. Um, just a tremendous amount of work um, to bring this event together and along with the larger initiative. Um, and I think it's just really, really exciting um, what you're doing with the Anna Julia Cooper Public Charter School Initiative. That was wrong, Charter School Initiative. Um, and, you know, I'm just excited to, to see how things develop and glad to be, to be here and to be able to be a part of it. Um, and it's really great to be here with this, this group tonight. So many brilliant people here. It's, this is really exciting. Um, I want to take a minute and um, just acknowledge a few uh, influences on the work that I've done. Um, I think this is a really important practice. I've, I'm going to give credit to this practice of giving credit um, from the Colored Conventions Project. Um, I don't know if people have heard of it, but one of the things they do is always, you know, there's one person standing in front of you, but there's a lot of people who have contributed to that work. Um, and I think too about the, you know, hashtags like black women. Um, we wanna make sure that we're acknowledging the people who have contributed. So I just wanna take a minute and um, I wanna first say, yes, Mary Helen Washington um, was my advisor at the University of Maryland. Um, she was the person who introduced me to Anna Julie Cooper. She did the 1988 Schomburg edition of A Voice from the South. And not too long ago, she actually sent me a biography um, that was given to her by Paul Philip Cook, who did a very early biography of Cooper. And um, Mary Helen passed it on to me. Um, Paul Philip Cook worked with Louise Hutchinson um, on the Cooper exhibit with Anacostia Museum. And that, to this day, is really some of the most incredible foundational work on Cooper. A lot of what we are doing here with Cooper, talking about Cooper, know about Cooper, wouldn't have been possible without that exhibit and without um, Paul Philip Cook and without Louise Hutchinson and the Anacostia Museum. Um, I also want to acknowledge Vivian May. Um, she wrote a book um, in two, 2006, question mark, um, maybe 2009, called Anna Julie Cooper, Visionary Black Feminist. And that book is the most sustained treatment of Anna Julie Cooper's um, larger body of work. And uh, Vivian May was a student of Beverly Guy Sheftal, um, who is the Anna Julie Cooper Professor of Women in Studies at Spelman College. And she recalls, Vivian recalls taking a seminar with Beverly where she got, quote, bit by the Cooper bug. And so once that happens, like, that's it. You're studying Cooper for the rest of your life. So hopefully um, some of you will, will have that experience too. Um, and I also want to thank Howard University. Um, the Moreland Spingarm Research Center holds Cooper's papers, um, which we've recently digitized through the work of Joellen Albashir, um, Lopez Matthews, McKinney Johnson, Adrena Eiffel. Um, and you know, it, it really, it was, that was a labor of love. We, we pulled together, we did it pretty quickly, got the papers digitized, and now they're available to, you know, a global audience of scholars and students who want to learn more about Cooper. Um, and I also want to thank my husband and my daughter who are here. They're also part of this process. My daughter helped me with the talk, um, gave me some coaching points, told me to be confident and brave, so I'm going to try to do that. Um, and, uh, that's it. So um, again, I know that was a long preface, but I think it's important just to recognize that this work is cumulative. Um, <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. And this is my clicker. I'm, yes. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. There we 
we go. Okay. It is hard to imagine today what was really at stake when Anna Julia Cooper in the late 19th, early 20th century advocated for a classical or liberal arts education for herself and her students. We have come in some ways to think of a liberal arts education as those courses we take in college while we are trying to determine what our real major will be. Or we might equate a classical education with reading the classic texts of Western literary tradition. And while reading classic texts is certainly part of a classical education, both classical and liberal arts education signifies so much more. Historically, a classical education signified a schedule of study that included grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, and a liberal arts education was focused on educating the whole person to think and lead and participate fully in the social, political, and civic life of a society. For Cooper to argue at the dawning of the 20th century for access to a classical liberal arts education for herself and her students ran exactly counter to the currents in the national racial politics within the United States and the local politics within Washington, D.C. Nevertheless, and at great cost to herself, Cooper persisted in advocating for an education for all grounded in the liberal arts tradition, and in the process, she transformed the shape of black education in our nation's capital. Born into slavery in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1858, Anna Julia Cooper rose to prominence by century's end as one of the most influential voices on racial and gender equality in the United States. She was a nationally and internationally renowned speaker, author, community advocate, and educator whose work included her 1892 collection of essays, A Voice from the South, and challenged systems of oppression and sought to improve the lives of African Americans. As a child, she attended St. Augustine's Normal and Collegiate Institute, before going on to earn a BA and MA in mathematics at Oberlin College. She taught for almost four decades at Dunbar High School, serving as principal for five of those years, and in 1925, she became only the fourth black woman in the US to earn her PhD when she completed and defended her dissertation at the University of Paris-Sobonne. At age 72, she took on the presidency of Freeling Heising University, a group of community schools for Washington, D.C.'s black working class residents, when she retired from her position as president in 1940, she continued to serve as the Institute's registrar until well into her 90s. Cooper lived until 1964, 105 years, almost all of which she devoted to advancing educational opportunities for African Americans. But Cooper's life story is so much more than accumulation of dates and facts. It is not just what she did, but it is how she did it, at what cost, and to what ends. It is not just what she accomplished, but what she overcame and what she made possible for others. Indeed, at nine years of age, Cooper entered St. Augustine's Normal and Collegiate Institute in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it could be said that that is where she staged one of her earliest protests against the educational disparities she would go on to confront throughout her life. Founded in 1867 under the auspices of the Freedmen's Bureau and the Episcopal Church, St. Augustine's offered African Americans in Raleigh and surrounding areas access to both vocational and liberal arts training. This access, however, was not without its gender disparities, and Cooper had to petition for admittance into St. Augustine's courses in Greek and Latin, a protest she would successfully enact again when she found herself shut out of the, quote, gentlemen's courses when she arrived at Oberlin College several years later. Cooper recalls of her time at St. Augustine's, quote, 
A boy had only to declare a floating intention to study theology, and he could get all the support and courage and stimulation, stimulus he needed, while a self-supporting girl had to struggle on by teaching in the summer and working after school hours to keep up with her board bills and actually to fight her way against positive discouragement to higher education. So here Cooper identifies two critical impediments to her educational advancement. One, the attempts to restrict her access to a full curriculum, and two, the lack of structural and particularly financial support for her educational pursuits. These two things will be critical in shaping her intellectual and activist agenda as she worked to pursue advanced educational opportunities for herself and others. And I want to pause here to note that it was not just that Cooper was protesting the fact that she herself had to work after hours and summers and to serve as a pupil teacher at age 10, but it was also, as she points out, the sacrifices that were made at home. In particular, those of her mother, Hannah Stanley, who Cooper states, even after emancipation, was not, quote, released from self-sacrifice, and many an unbuttered crust was eaten in silent content that she might eke out enough from her poverty to send her young folks off to school. So later in life, when Cooper addresses the all-black male clergy of the Protestant Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., she is not speaking in mere abstraction when she states, to be plain, I mean, let money be raised and scholarships be founded in our colleges and universities for self-supporting, worthy young women to offset and balance the aid that can always be found for a boy who will take theology. And she concludes, not the boys less, but the girls more. This pattern of protesting structural inequalities and advocating for social change and transformation will continue as Cooper translated her personal struggles to gain an edu equal education into her work as an intellectual, activist, teacher, and administrator. In 1887, she moved to Washington, D.C. to accept a position teaching mathematics and science at Washington's only black high school, the Washington Colored High School, known affectionately as M Street, and renamed Dunbar High School in 1917 in honor of Paul, um, poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Founded in 1870, only three years after Howard University, M Street was a preeminent secondary school for black education in the country. It offered rigorous liberal arts education along with vocational training to prepare its graduates for trade jobs, careers as teachers, and most notably for pursuits in higher education. In 1902, at 44 years of age, Cooper became the seventh principal of M Street High School. When Cooper claimed her position as principal of M Street, the racial climate locally as well as nationally was fraught. It had only been six years since Plessy vs. Ferguson had upheld racial segregation and public accommodation, including schools, and it would be another 52 years before Brown vs. Board of Education would make segregation of public schools unconstitutional. So the entirety of her career in public education takes place under the shroud of legalized racial segregation. Add to this a shifting racial climate in the U.S. that saw the political and civic gains of Reconstruction met with the resurgence of racial violence and the withdrawal of federal support for protecting the rights and lives of African Americans. Indeed, this is the era that saw the ascendancy of, the Booker, T. Washington, of Booker T. Washington and his Tuskegee model for industrial education. Washington's accommodationist approach, which emphasized training blacks for vocational and trade jobs, found enthusiastic supporters among white philanthropists and became the dominant, though not exclusive, model for black education. 
Running counter to this current, Cooper, in her position as principal, continued and expanded M Street's tradition of encouraging higher education among its students. As one of Cooper's early biographers, Paul Philip Cook, explains, Cooper succeeded in doing what white public schools in Washington, D.C. had not. She prepared her students to pass the entrance exams and gain admittance and scholarships to the top universities in the country. Under her leadership, M Street sent students to Harvard, Brown, Oberlin, Yale, Amherst, UPenn, Dartmouth, and Radcliffe, as well as prestigious black colleges and universities such as Fisk, Atlanta, and of course, Howard. Her students scored the highest in the district on standardized tests, and her school, her intellect, and her administrative acumen received international acclaim when French scholar Felix Klein, touring U.S. schools at the invitation of Theodore Roosevelt, identified M Street as one of the most illustrious schools in the nation. In her 1934 history of Dunbar High School, fellow intellectual activist and longtime Washingtonian Mary Church Terrell credits Cooper with the transformation of education in Washington, D.C. Cooper, she notes, instituted a liberal arts curriculum, began placing students at prestigious colleges and universities, and earned, a, earned accreditation for M Street from such esteemed institutions as Howard University. She did this in spite of resistance from the D.C. school board and the political machine that opposed liberal arts or classical education for African Americans, and she carried it out at great personal and professional cost. As Annie Easton, a former M Street student during those days, explained, if you could smell or feel or in any way sense the aura of D.C. in those days, you would know that it, would only, that it only took her daring in having her students accepted and given scholarships at Ivy League schools to know that the white power structure would be out to get her. When, for example, the white director of Washington High School's Percy Hughes insisted Cooper teach the colored curriculum, she refused for at least the third time in her life to accept for herself or her students an inferior program of study. Instead, she waged what she referred to as the courageous revolt against a lower colored curriculum for M Street High School. Despite her best efforts and the swell of support from, local, from the local community, in 1906, Cooper was removed from her post as principal of M Street when the board voted not to reappoint her. She was effectively exiled from her home in Washington, D.C., and she was denied official recognition as the educational leader she was. As she explained in a letter written from Lincoln, Missouri in 1909, I served as principal of M Street High School for five years. In this work, I had the satisfaction of believing that I was able to encourage the efforts of higher development. I could only say that my labor in this direction met with appreciative recognition from the people I served but they are lowly and the, for the most part voiceless. The dominant forces of our country are not yet tolerant of the higher steps for colored youth, so that while our course of study was for the time being saved, my head was lost in the fray. The M Street controversy, as it has uh, more commonly come to be known, is often boiled down to a debate between W.E.B. Du Bois and versus Booker T. Washington. This approach, however, diminishes Cooper's courageous role in advocating for liberal arts education for her students, as well as the ways in which her gender made her even more vulnerable and the ways in which racism, racism and sexism at the individual and structural levels work to forestall black education and really to dissuade black excellence or try to dissuade black excellence. After five years teaching at Lincoln, Missouri, 
at Lincoln Institute of Missouri, Cooper was called back to Washington, D.C. and resumed her position as a teacher at M Street. Though she would never again serve as principal, she continued to advance classical education for her students and to advocate for recognition of their achievements. In 1923, for example, Cooper put on a production of two scenes from the Aeneid. The production was exceptional for a number of reasons, including at the most fundamental level, as Titsi Jaji states, African-descended people were not expected to lay claim to the classics. Cooper's students' performance, not incidentally, focused on two scenes featuring Dido and set in Carthage, or modern-day Tunisia in North Africa. The African elements in the play are foregrounded, and as Monica Nduno explains, Cooper Africanized her production of the Neid by using Egyptian iconography in the set design and by highlighting references in the script to the presence and contributions of Africans in the Western world. As Ndunu concludes, Cooper used drama as a way of informing students, performers, and audience about the larger contributions of black people to mankind, especially at points of intersection with Western classical civilization, thus illuminating a common ancestry and showing black people with a world history preceding slavery. Cooper was especially pleased with what, she, with what the students and the community had been able to accomplish with such limited resources. Wanting to give the students the recognition that they deserved, Cooper wrote to W.E.B. Du Bois and sent him a picture of one of the students as Hecuba so that he might run a notice in Crisis Magazine. Du Bois was editor of Crisis at this time. When Du Bois failed to do so, explaining that the photograph Cooper sent him was not particularly interesting, and that he had had, quote, nothing of real interest about the play except for the short notice that she gave it, and that the general public was not, quote, much interested in that, um, Cooper fired back. According to me, Cooper says, and she quotes herself here, which I'd love she would do that, you know, she's like, according to me, um, and so she's like, I'm a source of authority here, a thing of beauty cut from the classic contact of a people is interesting. Cooper goes on to remark that the students' performance, quote, illustrates some of the best work accomplished in the Dunbar High School. And she notes, our staging alone costs several hundred dollars, which is a good deal for poor folks and amateurs. I trust you will give the readers of the crisis an opportunity to judge for themselves whether our effort is interesting. Underline quotation marks. <laughs> um, and I don't mean to, I don't bring that up just to point out that there was a tiff between Cooper and Du Bois, um, but it's really interesting and I'm happy to talk about that later. Um, but more to point out the degree to which Cooper was willing to go to advocate for her students. That her students could claim, participate in, engage directly, and transform a classic of Western civilization suggests one of the many ways their performance constituted an act of transformative resistance. As Vivian May asserts, Cooper held to the conviction that all forms of education should be sites of liberation, and she advocated a critical pedagogy where students and teachers would eschew models of learning based on rote memory, the uncritical reproduction of information, or facile imitation. Her students' performance thus served as an example of how Cooper brought education, activism, and art together as part of her social change agenda, and she sure believed that Du Bois should recognize this. While working full-time as a teacher, Cooper also continued pursuing her own education as well. 
but again, not without challenges and roadblocks. In 1925, she traveled to Paris under the duress of being fired from M Street to complete her doctoral degree. Though she had started her advanced studies in 1914 at Columbia University, when her brother died and she adopted his five grandchildren, she put her graduate studies on hold. Then, because M Street would not give her leave, she was unable to fulfill the residency requirement to complete her degree at Columbia University. With the assistance of Felix Klein, who had written that glowing review of M Street 20 years earlier, she transferred her credits to the University of Paris Sorbonne, where she wrote a new doctoral thesis in French on France's attitudes towards slavery during the French and Haitian revolutions, which she defended also in French in Paris, the heart of intellectual, you know, French intellectual and cultural life. Um, so, you know, and that's another thing we can talk about um, later as well is the degree to which Cooper was willing to go into this space and, you know, this kind of seat of cultural intellectual power and to talk to them about what they needed to do to recognize um, how slavery had shaped their history as well. Um, and, and her examiners, you know, took her to task for it and she, she took them to task right back. Later in life, Cooper would serve, am I missing, there's, there's Cooper, um, that's her dissertation um, on the left, and, and there she is in her doctoral uh, regalia on the right. Later in life, Cooper would serve as president of Freelinghuysen University, founded in 1906 as a group of community schools to provide continuing education for working black adults in Washington, D.C. As Leona Gable explains, Freelinghuysen was an effort to fill a serious need. Out of the seven full-time universities in Washington, there was but one black institution, and a list of 88 part-time colleges and special schools, not one would admit African Americans. When the D.C. Board of Education refused Freelinghuysen the right to grant bachelor's degrees and funds became increasingly tight, Cooper appealed to the NAACP to support it. She felt it was the duty and responsibility of the community to do so. When they did not, she moved portions of the administrative and teaching services into her T-Street home. As Paul Philip Cook states, Freelinghuysen served an important function in Washington, D.C. in its own right, while also propelling other schools in the district to make continuing and adult education part of their curriculum. As much as Cooper rose to prominence, as my somewhat brief comments today illustrate, she was, not, she was still and always working from the margins. And while Cooper was extraordinary, she was not singular. She worked within a community of men and women, some of whom she closely aligned, others with whom she held productive differences. She accomplished much, but she did not win all of her battles. Racism and sexism curtailed some of her most ambitious projects. She had wanted to write a history of African Americans in Washington, D.C. Who might be better to write that history than Cooper? But yet she was denied funds for such a project when she applied to the Brookings Institute for support. Nevertheless, the legacy she leaves is greater than defeats doled out on the basis of race and gender. She honored the humanistic impulse and saw education as a vehicle to answer the innate longings of each individual for self-realization and the highest expressions of freedom. She believed that an awakening of the individual consciousness could give rise to individual and social transformation. 
She advocated for the ideological but also material support for especially black girls and women, but for all people dispossessed from seats of power and privilege. She advocated for, wrote in support of, and utilized in her classrooms a pedagogical approach that pushed back against the dehumanizing curriculum of the machine age that relied on efficiency and wrote memorization and was producing workers instead of educating men and women. She transformed black education in DC by creating a steady stream of black students into the Ivy Leagues. Sorry, I just lost my place. Also, and also by creating community schools that put pressure on other institutions to create continuing education programs, and by modeling and inspiring at the very core of all of her work, education and service to the greater good. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was outstanding. I can't wait to discuss that. Um, uh, our next speaker is Dr. Carolivia Heron. Dr. Uh, Dr. Heron is a highly decorated and accomplished scholar and classicist with accolades too numerous to list in full at the moment, but includes the Elizabeth Stone Memorial Award. I'm going to mispronounce it. The Bechol. Bechol. LeSean Media Award, a Fulbright Fellowship, and more. She is an author and educator and the founder of Epic Center Stories. Carol Livia writes fiction, nonfiction, song lyrics, opera, and books for children, including nappy hair. She has held professorial appointments at Harvard University, at Mount Holyoke College, Cal State, uh, the College of William and Mary, and Arizona State University. She is currently a professor in Howard University's Department of Classics, teaching courses such as Blacks in Antiquity. And when we were speaking before this presentation, I was telling her how jealous I am of her students after I looked at the curriculum of her courses. They're really uh, outstanding. Uh, she also hosts her weekly radio program, Epic City, which you can hear at 4 p.m. on Tuesdays on Tacoma Radio 94.3. She can be found seemingly everywhere and anywhere. There are scholarly pursuits happening in D.C., and Dr. Heron's family has strong and direct ties throughout our city, and particularly with Dr. Cooper, whose influence inspires Dr. Heron's work today. Please welcome Dr. Carolivia Heron. Okay, uh, I, have to, I want to start by saying that so many of the names that you use in your talk are, are, were household names. I grew up with, with my, my grandmother and uh, her siblings and so forth all knew Anna Julia Cooper, they knew Terrell, they knew Mary McLeod Bethune. It was like a, all the educators in D.C. seemed to, to be godparents to my uncles and aunts. So it's, it's always it's always weird to for me to switch my brain around. And say, oh, they're famous out there. But, but that's that's Aunt Susie. You know, that's you know, they're 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 close friends. My mother talks about being 
placed on the lap of Mary McLeod Bassoon and different little things like that that are part of growing up and we're poor enough, but I guess you could say the, the black intelligentsia class, if you will, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. And I, I also wanted to make a statement in, in honor of Ben. I said your name wrong the first time. Now I want to make sure I get it right the second time. Payne. <laughs> that um, I know you did some work in a classic school in Atlanta and had, there are some problems there. Well, I want you to know the city of Atlanta asked for, to purchase 4,000 copies of my book, Nappy Hair, uh, and, uh, and seemed to be rejecting the classics, having no idea that the book, Nappy Hair, was written as a part of my comparative epic class at Harvard University, in which I taught the Iliad and the Odyssey and all those kinds of books, because it's in the direct tradition of the classical epics, and so I just want to, I feel like I have to say that in case I don't, it doesn't fit in somewhere. I want you to know that as a group. Well, I am going to basically tell you about my family's strive toward education, and Anna Julia Cooper will come in and out. Uh, I'll be ending with uh, talking about the harbor of Ethiopia, an African-American epic that I would not have discovered if I had not been dis, uh, dis, um, inspired by Anna Julia Cooper. From Roanoke to Bridgewater, I had a, an ancestor, 1858, uh, ran away from slavery in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, she had white skin, so she didn't have to take the Underground Railroad to use the Overground Railroad. She actually was at a, a school for white young ladies and didn't know that she was black until she came home unexpectedly and found out. And her white slave owner father uh, told her who she was, that sort of thing. A compromise was made, mother and father, the slave mothers and the slave-owning white father. Uh, she was given a bunch of money, put on a train, went to Massachusetts, and lived among the Wampanoag people, uh, Native Americans in Massachusetts, and made a decision. Uh, she was so mad about slavery that um, she was determined to turn her family black. She says, I have a little story called <laughs> from, black, from white to black in three generations. And she, 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 she was pretty oppressive, it sounds like to me. All of her daughters married the cold, cold blackest people they could find. And, 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 uh, and that's from whom I got my wonderful nappy hair. <laughs> it's white now, but it wasn't always white. Okay. Uh, so, so that's the beginning of the story. Uh, she... Uh, very much into education. She was in school when she found out about her education, having a, essentially a classical girl's education. And, and um, my, my parents, both of my parents, and, and my, on my mother's side in particular, always quoting Latin phrases and things around me. It was a part of my life. Um, my grandmother went to Harper's Ferry, which, of course, we associate with the with revolution, with, with John Brown and so forth. That's where she met my grandfather, who was from Jamaica, and they married. Um, both of my grandparents graduated from college in the early 1900s. This is unusual for anybody in the United States, let alone a black family, to have two people graduating from college so early. And my grandfather actually was a, was a professor for a short while at Storer College in West Virginia. Um, uh, they met at Hilltop House. Some of you may have, may have gone there. It's still there, I'm told. 
And I have the white to black, the three generations. Okay. Uh, I'm just listing some of the friends. Uh, Mary McCall Bethune, Anna Julia Cooper, Eliza Pearl Shippen. Was, um, she's the one who created the Deltas. Uh, she was a, she's like my mother's godmother. She's a household name. Bessie Parker. Um, my mother de described crying, going to school every day because she had to cross a railroad track out in Kenilworth neighborhood here in Washington, D.C., and she had to go past the white school to go to the black school, which is now Carver Elementary, and um, thinking about and her, and her own desire to be educated and, and uh, outraged by, even at that young age, having to go to school in that way. My mother was a graduate of Dunbar High School and uh, was there after Anna Julia Cooper, but knew all about her and, and of course, had heard about her through her mother, my grandmother, as well and learned Latin and studied Latin and was a Latin scholar there. And uh, I, she even studied, I, I'm told, uh, Anglo, she, did, she used to recite um, Chaucer, Middle English, to me and that sort of thing, from high school. Uh, she, it was at M Street School that she met Marian Anderson. She met uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. And uh, you can read about that or see that if you ever see my opera, I have it. I've, I've made it into the opera of Marian Anderson, Let Freedom Sing, the story of Marian Anderson. This is actually the 80th anniversary of her, this year, of her concert on the Mall in 1939. And we're hoping to do something about that at, at Howard University in April. Okay, so uh, I, want, I guess I want to finish my, my parents' life, and then I get to the Anna Julia Cooper in my life. So, so bear with me. My mother uh, graduated from M Street School, which was Dunbar High School by that time, and got two letters in the mail, one offering her a big job, as they thought, in the federal government, and the other to go to college. It was Minor Teachers College, and her mother had always wanted to be a teacher. And, every, and everybody said, oh, if you go into the government, you'll make so much money, you'll be rich, you'll be this, that, and the other. And everybody was begging her to go for the government job. And she said she went into the bedroom and cried and cried and cried and cried. And her mother said, uh, you know, you want to be a teacher, go be a teacher. And the whole family capitulated, as it were, and she gave up the rich job, as it, as it seemed to them then, and went on to be a teacher and um, through, through through what is now the University of District of Columbia, and uh, I can just just to finish up that story. She's still with us in the world. She's 94 years old. She became a super science teacher in in Washington D.C. And um, I guess one of the, the funniest moments of my life was when I was a brand new newly minted professor at Harvard University, right? I thought I was hot stuff. I was walking across, you know, the yard and thought, I'm really something, you know. And then some kid comes, comes running across the yard, Professor Heron, Professor Heron. I said, what, what, yes, yes, what do you, what, what? are you Miss Heron's daughter? <laughs> I said, oh, no, is that all this stuff I've done in my Miss Heron's daughter. She, he had taken science from my mother at Lafayette Elementary School and, and was thanking me for my mother. Uh, so but that's what happens, you know. <laughs> you can't follow after some people. Okay, well, I, uh, surrounded by all of 
this education and classic education. My father was in love with epic heroes. I'm an epicist, if you will. My nickname is the epicentrist because I'm always into epics and talking about epics. And, I, and even when I'm trying to talk about something else, I, I'm talking about epics. And I can remember walking, um, my first contact with Anna Julie Cooper was just walking by her house and seeing the area where she lived. Because on T Street was the house where uh, there were lots of elite black people lived in. I, I didn't live there. I was, I was like, you know, second, third, fourth tier. But, but they were like the Mayor Washington married into the Bullock family. The, the Bullocks were pastors of my mother's church, Third Baptist Church, superstars kind of thing. And I was considered smart enough. They had a daughter. I was considered smart enough. They would bring, they would come all the way out to the Northeast and get me to come play with their daughter because they wanted their daughter to play with somebody smart. So that was, that was my, that was my experience of T Street. And so I would go up and down T Street. And, um, and Mayor Washington, you may know, lived on T Street, uh, 508 T Street. I used to go in there and play with Mayor Washington's daughter. Um, <laughs> and that was a part of my, my life. So I, so I was familiar with her name then. And um, there are okay, a, couple of, a couple of scenes. I think of the concept of hiding in, in order to learn. This is the, if I may distill the Anna Julia, Julia Cooper in my life, it's hiding somewhere so that you could learn something. I went to Neville Thomas Elementary School in, in Northeast in Mayfair Mansions neighborhood. And when I, would, uh, when I finished all the work, for all six grades, by the time I finished the first grade, I just sat in the corner for the six years. I didn't, I didn't do much of anything. I had to, um, they didn't know what to do. There was no school they could send me to. And thinking about, and, and I want to jump to something you said, by the way, things are coming to my mind. You, you stir so much. My father actually had the highest recorded uh, scores in IQ in Washington, D.C., when he, and, he, and there was no, nothing they could do with him. They could, there's no place to send him, no school no place, no, no encouragement, and no money. He didn't want to be a preacher, and if you don't want to be a preacher, you had nothing. You had no way you could go for, for further. So that, that really struck me when you talked about it. And, and that, his education was through you know, the Dunbar High School, through that high education, very high education. So hiding to learn when we're supposed to be at recess, you know, running into the school, and sneaking up to the sixth grade room and reading the books that you're not supposed to be able to read yet and finishing them all up. And I was, my mind was, in a, in a way, was getting ready for the Anna Julia Cooper story, I feel, that, that affected me so much in the research part of my life. Because I, when I found out that she could, they wouldn't let her learn Greek and Latin, which I wanted to learn so much. And I can tell you, in my high school, Coolidge High School, our Latin teacher would not allow the black students to come in through the front door. We had to go in through the back door. The, the white students went in through the front door. And if you wanted to learn Latin, you had to want it a lot because you had to endure the insult of going into the back door. I remember trying to go in through the front door once. She just stood there and wouldn't let me through. But I wanted to learn it so bad that I put up with that insult and went in through the back. And she would teach Latin four days a week and on on. Friday, she would teach Greek, and I actually preferred the Greek, and so I, I, would, I would just wait for Friday so we could learn a little bit of Greek, and, and that was like uh, a joy for me, fighting to be, fighting to be educated. There was an, a person in my mother, a neighborhood where my mother grew up in Kenilworth, Charles Thomas. He was actually the dean of 
Minor Teachers College, uh, another product of, of Paul Cook and, and the people you've been mentioning. I, Paul Cook is a good friend of mine. I've visited him many times, and so it's just like, I can't believe you're talking about my friends. <laughs> uh, and, okay, so I didn't realize that Harvard was uh, a white, basically a white school, because there was this black man on our street. Everybody said he was the smartest man in the world. Okay, he was Dr. Charles Thomas. He had very dark skin. And there was a joke that I didn't quite understand about him in which he would, um, there'd be a big occasion and everybody would wear their robes and he would wear his Harvard robe, which of course was red. And there was an idea then that the dark-skinned people should not wear bright red. And somebody who didn't understand that Harvard was a prestigious school said to somebody else in the group, why would they put the red robe on Charlie? Because he's so, so dark. And it was like a big joke in the family that this poor, stupid person didn't know that this was an honor. To, and that, in this case, the usual don't let black people wear red, red didn't, didn't fit. Well, I didn't understand any of that. I didn't understand colorism. I was, I was clueless. And I thought that meant that you had to have really dark skin to go to, to, be the, to, go to the school with the smartest person in the world. So I remember sitting on the wall across from his house on, on, on Douglas Street, and wishing I was really, really black so I could go to this school called Harvard. And, and, and that way I could, be, I could go where the smartest man in the world used to go. I got to tell this story at his funeral and share it for the first time with his wider family. It was a, it was a lot of laughter about that. Uh, he actually visited me at, at Harvard once I, at my office there before he died, which was which also a joy. So this is all the background I want before I get to the what did Anna Julia Cooper do in my life? I was told that there's no such thing as African-American epic. Almost all the genres of African-American poetry occur for black people at the same time as they occur for white people. And black people are writing romantic poetry when white people are writing romantic poetry and back and forth and so forth. And most... Uh, American epics are written around the Revolutionary War, and you don't find any African-American epics around the Revolutionary War. So people said they didn't exist. And I just felt like I was really depressed. I felt like the epic impulse is everywhere, and they have to exist. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll get that back when I need it. We don't need it right, right now. And so I, I was sort of wandering around libraries and digging up old things and uh, happened upon Anna Julia Cooper's a voice from the South, and read about her sitting in the back of the room, hiding under a table. I mean, she was learning Greek under a table, and these, these well, I won't say what word is in my head, in the front, with the, with, the, with the table available to them, weren't learning a thing, and she had it all. And I thought, well, I'm just going to take this from her. And I remember just reading that, and I said, I'm making the decision that African-American epics exist. I'm ignoring everybody who tells me it doesn't exist. I just decided it. I, I, I don't care what they say. And so now, okay, where is, where is it? And so I started going to libraries, uh, and, and I did, instead of saying, I, I don't know if this exists, and can I look at this, that, and I, I just decided that it, that it was there. And I went to the rare book rooms in the Library of Congress, and, and I got a, a wonderful fellowship to the Beinecke Library at Yale, couldn't find a thing there. I found, I found, a, I did find a book, 1835. That was my first clue that there was something there. 1835, John Boyd, 
wrote an epic in Miltonic blank verse uh, from the Bahamas called A Vision. Aha! So as, as if, I, if I feel a desire for this, other people must have felt it at some time, so let me find this stuff. So I couldn't find it, and I, I got this wonderful fellowship, the Barnaby, went up and down everything, went through all the catalogs, nothing, nothing, nothing. And every day I would be in the library feeling depressed because I was spending their money and enjoying that part, but I, I could find nothing. I would pass by these great big piles of, of, of like card catalogs that said miscellaneous. Miscellaneous. I said, I said, well, I'm not finding anything else. I might as well see what miscellaneous is. So I pull out the miscellaneous, and lo and behold, some amazing person way back when is just collecting epic poems from all over the place, ten at a time, sticks them in a binder, puts them on the shelf, and calls it miscellaneous. And like there are like 100, 200 of them. And most of them are about white people. But I find like 20 by black people. And he just sticks them in there, and it's under miscellaneous. And I'm thinking, wow. And I found my stuff. And it was like, <laughs> I think Anna Julia Cooper was there. I, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't have to be a scholar. Like, I can be a novelist kind of person. And say, so I think there was a spirit <laughs> there helping me out. And I couldn't believe the joy I found with um, finding these, these epics. And they're about everything under the sun. Uh, they, 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 they use, some, some of them use Milton. Some of them use Homer. Some of them use Germanic epics, the, the, um, the Faust story as their, as their foundations, and, and elaborating stories about, about African Americans. Many of them use, about half of them use Abraham Lincoln as a hero. Uh, there, it's almost as if there's a certain kind of sadness in this. Uh, you find them just struggling to figure out who is the hero? Who is the hero? And I have this picture in my head that they were, they were sitting at a, at a window <laughs> and escaping slaves are running past the window and they're thinking, who was the hero? And they can't see, you know, that the hero was right there among us and a part of them. So many of them have those kinds of stories. But I, can we get the, the, the um, I, don't, I don't know what happened to, to this. The, the, the one I found at the end Maurice Corbett. Is it? Sorry about that. It's because I, I wasn't using it enough, so I didn't like what I was doing. <laughs> Among other things, um, okay, called The Harp of Ethiopia. Not only does it talk about the history of African Americans and Africans in the world, uh, it's, it's, can I, I, I guess I can't make it do something. Okay, yeah, Maurice Corbett there. And if you if you look at it a little bit further, it'll tell you the heroic deeds of their leaders and and uh, ancestral progenitors, their trials and difficulties, all sorts of wonderful things. Trying to tell the African story, the Afri African American story, the Ethiopian story, but um, also in the rhythms themselves, finally getting away from strictly European rhythms and using some African-derived rhythms, jazz rhythms syncopated rhythms, that sort of thing. And it's just a wonderful experience to go from from, from 1835 to, I'm sorry, it's, it's 1910. I'm, I'm, forgive me, I've forgotten the exact years on there. And I've, Anyway, it's, it's, it's in the early 1900s. So, so this, I feel, is what, is what Anna Julia Cooper gave me. Um, and there has to be, the idea that there has to be 
an African-American epic. And if you actually, I don't think, I don't know how to get to the, to the page, but if you go back far enough, let me see if I can find it. You know, the, the, you know, we scholars don't get much in this world, but <laughs> the, the, the entry in the catalog, I'm sorry, I don't know how to, without the computer, says American, African, American, and epic. That did not exist before my work. It's like, yes, Anna Julia Cooper and I did that. It, 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 there, yeah, can you see it? it, it the, the word African, American, and epic did not occur in the same place before this work. So this is what she did, this is what I did, and this is, this is what I feel is, is the contribution that I have, I feel like I've helped to make um, as a part of the tradition of insisting that there is a classical tradition in our in our culture in our lives, and I um, let me see. I don't. I think that is what I had to, wanted to share with you. Yes. Uh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Can you hear? Oh, you can hear me. Okay, I know you can hear me. Um, <laughs> uh, if, if anyone has a, a question, please, um, for either uh, Dr. Heron or for uh, Dr. Moody Turner. If not, I'm going to be selfish and ask all the questions. So <laughs> uh, I have a lot. Mm -hmm. so if you have any questions, your hand. Yeah, please. Hi. Um, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed both of these presentations. And I have a question about, for both of you, if you know this, but I think Dr. Moody Turner, if you could maybe answer first, what was the relationship between Anna Julia Cooper and Margaret Murray Washington? Because I know that they were both teaching. Mm -hmm. um, Cooper was older, I believe. But I'd love to, because I know you, you kind of drew out the tension between um, Du Bois and Washington. I thought, what about the, the women? Thank you. That's a good question. Um, I haven't found a lot that documents the two of them in direct conversation in any way, but they were definitely in overlapping circles. So um, Cooper was working with, uh, where's Nazira, the Colored Women's League in Washington, D.C., Colored Women's League, and um, I, I can't remember the exact name. They, they change names, but eventually they come together and it's a National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. And so um, Margaret Murray Washington was active in that, and so they would have, they would have been working together on similar projects. So I, I don't find anything that documents any real animosity. Um, what's interesting, though, is a lot of people, have, one of the people people have looked at is Mary Church Terrell and have thought, well, Cooper and um, Mary Church Terrell went to Oberlin together um, they're in D.C., this whole thing happens with M Street. Mary Church Terrell doesn't really come out and say a whole lot at that time, and, and why is that? Cooper actually replaces um, Robert Terrell as, after he, he moves on to a different position. She's principal right after him. And so, you know, there was all kinds of speculation that, that they didn't get along or, or that they're husbands, but I'm hesitant about that because I think there were all kinds of politics going on, and 
a lot of the women ended up working together um, when their interests and needs kind of intersected. Um, and I, I, I don't know that, you know, for Mary Church, I don't know that it would have done much for her to say something at that point, to come out in defense of Cooper in that moment. Um, and I find evidence later that they did work together and that, you know, Mary Church Terrell writes about Cooper as being this transformative force mm -hmm. um, in black education when she writes the history of Washington, D.C. But one thing, I'll just say one more thing to that really quickly, is that the period of the 1890s really sees this kind of foment of black women's political and intellectual activity. Um, and in some ways that gets answered in like 1900, a lot of those avenues start getting shut down. So Cooper gets excommunicated from M Street. Mary Church Terrell is having problems getting her work published and printed in mainstream press. Pauline Hopkins gets pushed out of Colored American Magazine by the same kind of Tuskegee machine that was behind Cooper's. And um, Ida B. Wells gets mm -hmm. ostracized in the NAACP. And so, in some ways, there's this kind of reaction against this, this black way. I don't know if it's a direct reaction, but um, they end up having vehicles that have been open to them for political activity kind of um, curtailed. And they start looking for and finding alternative spaces to do that. Thank you very much for your lectures. Um, I'm really interested in the idea of the miscellaneous folder um, and, and also in relationship to that idea of a miscellaneous folder and what you can find in that. Um, in particular, um, Shirley, when you're digitizing the Cooper archive, then what are the other materials that you found, such as Cooper's autograph album, her I make, uh, yeah, um, there, the same collection that Mary Washington, uh, the, uh, that she, she edited the 40 volume Schomburg collection. Oh, Gates, yeah. Yeah, Gates. I did one of the books for that. Mm -hmm. I did the one on Angelina Weld Grimke. And to speak sort of to your question, although it's not about Cooper directly, of those 40 books, 39 of them were of books that were already finished. The editor just had to read the book and write an essay for it. Of course, the one I had to do was scattered all over Moreland, Springon, and, and, and New York City, and everywhere else. And I had to pull it together. And I, and I really had to fight with Skip Gates because he wanted to call it the complete works of Angelina Weld Grimke. There's no way it could be complete. It, it, I was looking at the backs of envelopes and turning em envelopes inside out and, and napkins that were from, from, you know, coffee shops. And I, I read all the letters. She's the first uh, lesbian, uh, as far as I know. I don't know if there's somebody 
found somebody earlier than that that we know of, African-American, lesbian, where I, I saw all the letters where she crossed out the, the she's and put he's in there for publication. Well, I didn't publish both, both versions. They chose to publish, you know, the most recent version of it. But, but, it's, but it's, I can say that I tried to get everything, but there's no way it's, everything is there. And, and I, I, I've actually tried to get, somebody needs to go there and make a, do a better job so that we can call it complete. But it, it is not so, but you, you did that as well. Yeah. Well, I was thinking when you were talking um, about saying, you know, just making a decision that it, it, it should be there, so it has to be there. Mm-hmm. And that literally is a method. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. That's a method of research. Yeah. You know, I've done that with Cooper a number of times where I'm like, there, she's working with Celestine Boulay, who's this famous French sociologist, and there have to be co- correspondences between mm-hmm. the two. Like, they have to be they there. They have to be there. You know, mm-hmm. and so it's a matter of, like, going, journeying mm-hmm. to the spot and, mm-hmm. you know, looking in unlikely places in archives, but also, you know, in attics. And in conversations, yes. like just in conversations, you know, thinking about the conversations you've had with your family and learning more about Cooper and the test. And oh, the more I, the more I hear you and, and others like you, if, if you will. There are not too many. I don't know if there's anybody like you, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I, I mean. People are referring to these. I realize that the the background noise of my childhood is a play, is a is a novel, is a book, is something I never realized. I don't you Mary Church you know, you'll fall asleep and you don't realize these are these are people that are that are so important later on. And and as I get older they rise and rise and rise and I'm thinking, Well yeah, she was down the street and she was she was my Uncle Jack's godmother and you know, that sort of thing. I would love to have a, a drama that say of a coffee shop or or you know a, I don't know, boudoir, anyway. <laughs> have them all talking together. It would be wonderful. You have a project. Mm-hmm. I just want to say one more thing about your question. Um, because for me, I'm, the next book I'm working on is called Shadow Writings. And so, um, not called Shadow Writings, it's about shadow writings. And not only is it a matter of looking for works that, you know, exist outside of the published book, like you were saying, the work you've done on our autograph albums and the stories that they tell, mm-hmm. So it's not only finding the items, but also the way you, I've seen her autograph albums before. When I heard you give your talk on them, I was like, wow, <laughs> I didn't see all that. You know? <laughs> and so having new ways of reading these materials, too. You know, um, people say Cooper wrote one book, really, Voice from the South, but what about her scrapbook? Is that a book or is it not a book? Why can't we count that as another book? Um, she, cut, she wrote articles for the Washington Bee and the Washington um, and the Afro-American, and she cut them out and pasted them into a book. And the articles are all about discriminatory practices against workers, um, about this machine age production, critiques of an, um, kind of rote education. And they're pasted over this book that's telling the story of the rise of Standard Oil and industrial capitalism. <laughs> you know, like, you don't think there's a conversation going on there? There's a conversation <laughs> going on there. You know, and so learning how to read these kinds of subversive practices that they're doing to get these materials. And then the last thing I'll say about that is um, it's also um, about reading the stuff that doesn't even exist. And, you know, when Cooper published Voice from the South two years later, um, Alice Bacon, the founder of the Hampton Folklore Society, said, you know, we are so excited that Cooper has another book on the way. Oh, no, that, you know, that drives you crazy. You know, and that's Because you can't find it. Yeah, there, yeah. And, and did she ever write it? Is it gone? The, the story of Washington, D.C. that she would have written, mm-hmm. what would that story be from Anna Julia Cooper living her whole life, you know, in D.C.? 
but she didn't get the funding, and, and so she didn't write that story. So mm -hmm. I think there's just a, a whole different way of reading black women's Yes, and I, no, I have to add to that because I, I, the, before Phyllis Wheatley died, we were told that, that she had the manuscript of a second book. I dream, I have, I have dreams of going through, through Boston and digging up her grave and finding them under her bones and <laughs> bringing them back to the life. It's like, I got, I found it, I got it. And then I wake up and I'm just here in DC and it's like, oh no. <laughs> and it's, it is, if you get the researcher's book, you got it. There's nothing you can do about it. You gotta keep wanting to find it. Ma'am, mm -hmm. in the back. Thank you so much for both of your presentations. And um, my question is for Dr. Turner, and it's a two questions that I'm going to pretend link together. Um, the first, because so I think you mentioned being bit by the Cooper bug, and I was recently bit by the bug, and I've read a whole bunch of her stuff. And there were two things that um, stood out to me that tie back to as we talk as we're talking about education today. And the first one is you mentioned that she kind of rejects this rote memorization. Mm -hmm kind of strict way that school was taught. And the reason that is interesting now is when we talk about classical education, often what people are talking about is they think about the grammar, the recitation, all that, which is part of the classical education um, that Cooper espouses, classicism and the liberal education. Can you talk a little bit about that contrast between what she is pushing back again with what she views as classical with kind of what we talk about now when we view classical? And the second question is, um, I was really struck in her writings by how going back and forth you have writings that very much fit with what everyone talks about when we talk about black feminism and then you have writings where she really elevates and praises kind of the sphere of domesticity um, and I don't think it's just because of the period when she's writing but she really views the, the home as this powerful tool and I know she constantly opened her own home up to her students and extended education. But could you talk a little bit about the tension of how she reconciled kind of an education um, for women with this emphasis on the home and then how she viewed classical education as moving beyond this rote memorization even though we often talk about that in relation to the classical liberal education. Two very, very good questions, big questions. Um, so I think, you know, we don't know exactly how she was teaching, you know, what it looked like in the day-to-day, -day, you know, curriculum in the classroom necessarily, but we have kind of glimpses into that. And I think the play is a really interesting example for me of that, right? Like she, there's a way in which, okay, you, you learn, um, you know, you need, the, you need the, the kind of grammar, you need the language to be able to engage. But that doesn't mean that you are accepting that um, uncritically, right, or unconsciously. And so I think even looking at the play is like, okay, you're going to read the Aeneid, but what you're going to be doing is so different, right? And I, I'm not a classicist. <laughs> Let me I need that play in my class. I need to do <laughs> But, you know, what she chose to focus, like where you choose to focus, I think is really important. What elements you choose to look mm -hmm. at how she's seeing, you know, teaching her students to read in that, the kind of, um, do a kind of against the grain, maybe reading of that. So I think that's part of, of what she was doing. She also, which is really interesting, um, is she, one of the, when, how I came to Cooper was, um, I was doing work on the Hampton Folklorist, and I found Cooper um, hanging out with a bunch of folklorists in like, you know, Hampton, Virginia. And I was like, wait, 
Cooper doing in Hampton, Virginia? Like, you know, this, uh, this picture, this a kind of iconized picture we have of her didn't really fit with that model, and yet there she was, you know, in Hampton, Virginia. And when she, I love the story, she, she goes to a meeting of the Hampton Folklore Society. They have the president of the all-white American Folklore Society, William Wells Newells, addressing the students, and he's telling them that soon they will throw off all of their kind of particularities, and they will join the great race of humans, you know, once they can kind of get rid of all that kind of specific stuff and just be human, you know, be human race. So Cooper gets up right after him <laughs> and says, you know, you should appreciate that which is closest to you. You need to cultivate a respect for your own traditions, your own stories, that which is nearest. And she tells them, literally, there is material here as great as ever inspired Homer or Virgil. And that is, the, that is what is going to give life to your engagement, right? And so I think it's very different than saying, okay, you're going to read this and kind of memorize it. But she's really trying to think about, I think always, she, how they embody that space. And I think she does that in her writing. You know, people, my, my advisor, Mary Helen, wrote um, one of the, the lines that says, you know, Cooper was kind of, had this elevated rhetoric and um, was kind of speaking for, but not always to, um, kind of working class black women. And a lot of people have kind of taken up a critique of that and saying, well, she's talking across multiple registers. You know, she's always talking across multiple registers. You know, biblical allusions and references, her audience would have, you know, black working class audiences would have gotten that, you know. And so I think that she, she knew ways to embody different discourses and how to kind of speak across registers. Um, and the home question, there's more. Okay, um, <laughs> the home question. Um, I think she did, I think she, she didn't want to, I think, and people who've read Cooper and know Cooper, you can jump in and, you know, fill in, but um, I, I think she didn't want to completely collect, I don't think she had essentialized views of this is male sphere, this is female sphere, but I think she did want to say that there, there are distinctions, not that you don't move across them, not that they're kind of gendered binary spheres, but that there was something to be said for the work that had to be done in the home that that work was important, right? And so I think that that, but I think it, I don't think she kind of, she's moving always. You know, I don't think it's like centered here. I think it's part of a, a very vast network of space across which she moved. Sir. Yes, my question is short. <laughs> Would you mind talking a little bit more about the, you know, the relationship or the relationship Andrea Cooper had with the classics? And here I'm thinking about Blyden, right? If you recall in his essay on the liberal education, right, he had a distinct view, right? Namely that, you know, he preferred that to the modern view. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit more, you know, about uh, the specific relationship he had with the classics. Um, <laughs> I don't, I mean, I think it, I think she saw it as really critical, as an important way to, um, 
I mean, I think she saw it in one sense as a way to lay claim to a certain kind of space and certain kind of tradition that you had to, to have this experience in the classics um, give you access to different kinds of venues and, and worlds. Um, and I th but I think she also saw it as, a, as an important way to kind of to answer that, um, what she called that singing something, that humanistic impulse. Um, but I, again, I still don't think that, it, I don't think it was a completely westernized view of it. I think that there were, that she had um, maybe a more critical consciousness toward classical education, but still I think embraced it, but I don't think embraced it unconsciously. I, yes, obviously I don't know as much about Cooper in direct ways, but I know about her effect on DC education. So I guess I feel that's where my I come into that to that question because I'm the result of that education and so are my parents, and and I uh, one of the I, I didn't you know, I didn't say everything before when I discovered the African American epic, and then I began to do a, extend my discovery into African epic. I remember my first trip to Africa, I had to go through Paris, and I went and stood in the Sorbonne just to thank her. Uh, I just have to say that, that this is the because uh, I knew she had been there and her way to her PhD and then went on to do the other. But I find that that question reminds me of questions I, I get like when I started my, my PhD at Penn and I told them I was interested in Latin and, and, and Greek and this sort of thing. I remember one of one of my very well-meaning professor ended up directing my dissertation saying, "Do you want to be the first black classicist?" And I'm thinking, what? You know, and we've been learning Latin. Every, it was taken for granted that we would be learning Latin and Greek, and it's because of Anna Julia Cooper. We all learn Latin um, from, you know, we, we get, I remember getting a taste of it in, in fifth and sixth grades and then taking it as a regular class starting in junior high school. And the, the problem I have in answering the question is it was such a part of our lives that I can't separate it from just going to school. And so you're asking for specific information as if it was something unusual when it actually was one of the mill day-to-day -day life. Everybody did Latin. And, and she, it's because of her. Uh, she's the one who brought that. And I didn't realize that at the time, but, but it was a part of, part of our life. As I say, my, I remember my, my grandmother uh, singing Latin songs as I'm sitting there doing my math or geometry homework, just running around singing Latin. And, and uh, my mother... Um, in doing the same, the same thing. She she has her, some Latin poems I still don't understand. I got to get you to help me out with it. That that, that she learned when she, and she recited Latin, and, you know, just like at at, um, at some of the Ivy maybe maybe more than Ivy League schools they have like the Latin speech at the end. You know, during the graduation, and my mother did the Latin speech for her high school. You know, and that was like normal. It was not special. I have a question that I'd like to sort of tack on to that because I think I, I heard some things that, that um, raised for me some of the questions that have been in my mind for a very long time throughout this. And that's, so when, when we're, you know, you mentioned, for example, um, almost being dissuaded, right, in, in your pursuit of studying classics. And that's certainly um, a story that seems to repeat itself. Um, and then you mentioned as well um, uh, Cooper and and her sort of her, her more 
global view of, of looking at heritage and history and classics. And, mm -hmm. and so what I'm wondering is how do you, how do we, how do we create a just curriculum, a curriculum that integrates, um, you know, Western heritage and, and things like this with, um, with the African-American experience, with the great authors and the, the, with people like Anna Julia Cooper and Du Bois and um, what does that look like? Um, bringing those two together, because that's what we're doing right now. And so I'm wondering, what does that look like now? Do you think uh, to bring those two together at the K-12 level as well as at the university and college level? Yeah. Well, we talked about that. Sounds like yesterday's conference, doesn't it? We, were, we had a conference yesterday at the Center for Hellenic Studies, in which we we dealt with these same these similar questions. And one of my responses is, you know, you have some wonderful wild-eyed Afrocentrists that are going to turn everything black, that they're crazy off on the side. I love them, but you don't have to love them. <laughs> but you don't have to go there. You can go to your normal, regular, classic people. They have all kinds of black people in there that you, you classicists, I don't know who's out here, you've never mentioned. And, and that's what, what, what I was saying yesterday, and that's what I'll say again. You don't, you know, the, the, the idea that, and, that in Ovid, Andromeda is black. And I've never heard, and I've been studying classics all my life, and nobody ever told me this. You know? And I asked my colleagues at Howard, you know, did you know? And they said, well, yeah, we knew. <laughs> and you never thought to tell us? Yeah. And it's just something that hadn't occurred. It's not ill-meaning. It's not racism. It's just not realizing that it makes it boring. Now, I love the classics, whether they're black folks in there or not. I have to admit, it's, I love it. But I'm delighted to know that there are all kinds of black people that, that, are, that are black, a whole black army went to defend Troy. Yeah. And, it's not, and it's not in some wild, because it's not, it's not off on the periphery of scholarship. It's, it's of, in the center. Right, it's part of the concern. So, so, why, don't, so why doesn't anybody mention it? Is that, you know, why is it the classes don't, don't mention those things? Because, you, yeah, because it's, it, it develops a place in the curriculum in the 19th century where it is European heritage. Mm -hmm. So we, now we have to pretend like it's nobody else's. Yeah, right. mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just reiterate that. I think, you know, um, the one of the things when Cooper did her dissertation on the um, French and Haitian revolutions, just putting those two things together, the French and Haitian revolution, like the French weren't really trying to do that. <laughs> like, you know, European history is kind of separate from what's happening in the colonies. And, um, and so by saying, no, no, these things are completely mutually constitutive. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think it's not just a matter of what is really important, I think, is diversifying the curriculum is important, and I think the work you're doing it speaks to that. Like, mm -hmm. there you go, now we can find African-American epics <laughs> yeah. on there. But, um, but it's also the way that we read. Like, how are we reading um, these texts? How are we constructing? So it's not just a matter of diversifying curriculum, which is important, yeah. but it's also then what is the lens? You know, we can't just put, put them on there and say, see, we've got the Western classics, and then we've added a couple other yeah, things right. to that. <laughs> that's, that's, One That's a different issue. We need, to do, we need to add things as well. But, but I, I guess one thing that struck me, I don't know what got into me to take on teaching this course, Blacks in Antiquity, because I didn't know any better. <laughs> so I took it on. And it's like every week I find something new. Last semester it seemed like every week I would come in with some absolute fact, and a student would say, well, but no. 
<laughs> Actually, I learned last week, and they were right, and I was wrong. It was like, oh, you I used like, Dr. Snowden's text for the Yeah, I, I used three basic texts, uh, Snowden, um, Bernal, okay. Black Athena, oh, yeah. and Mary Lefkowitz to give us oh, a counter, yeah. which, which they refused to buy. Wonderful discussion, <laughs> sure, yeah. Okay. Um, if more, please, more questions. Yes. Uh, my question was for Dr. Uh, Moody. I recently discovered uh, the book, uh, They Knew Washington, They Knew oh. Lincoln by John Washington. Mm -hmm. And I thought about what you said about uh, Cooper's desire to sort of write this history of African Americans in D.C. Do you know if they were a part of the same circle? Did they know each other? I'm sure your family probably knew John Washington. <laughs> he was everybody. a teacher um, <laughs> at Cardozo High School. Mm -hmm. Um, in the 1930s, 40s, I guess, ish. The book was published in the 40s. It went out of print. And then a woman by the name of Kate Mazor, who's a history professor somewhere in Illinois, got it back into print very recently in 2017. So I'm curious if they were... I'm not sure. They're, those circles are pretty close, yeah. so they might have overlapped, but it would be interesting to trace those two histories mm -hmm. and see how he wrote that book, what kind of funding and support he had to do it. Um, this woman, Hannah Wallinger, has done that with Cooper and Du Bois, kind of tracing the different levels of support they had to do their projects and um, how their careers kind of took such different um, directions and why sometimes people will say, well, yeah, Cooper and Du Bois, I mean, they're not really on the same, because Du Bois was so much more prolific, you know, but when you start looking at, like, where the funding and the support, institutional support, resources, there's reasons why someone might have been able to publish a history and someone else <laughs> might not. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're wonderful. You're wonderful. Yeah. I look forward to your book going into publication. Okay. Thank you all so much, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I think I just want to say a few words. Um, thank you so much. That was a wonderful discussion. Um, I look forward to continuing it as we move on. I think the, the thing to point out is that this is a, a long discussion that's been going on for dozens, hundreds of years, um, and we're still in it. Um, and the reason why we still have to have symposiums like this, uh, the reason why we have to recall Anna Julia Cooper, I'm so thankful for these wonderful people for bringing, uh, continuing her story, is because it's still going on, uh, and that we still have uh, we still have an access and an equity issue in education. And um, even as recent as 2017, uh, when a classical school with a predominantly African-American population is told that uh, your curriculum is not appropriate for your student body. Um, and that part of it is intentional and part of it is just not understanding. Uh, and so we're quite blessed, humbled to be among all the wonderful people in this room and to continue Anna Julia Cooper's story uh, through the Barney Charter School Initiative, through this charter school effort in Washington, D.C. No better place, no more appropriate place uh, to push this uh, forward. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, before you leave, we have another uh, treat from Mr. Roger Moss, Jr. and Ms. Lorena Clements. Um, another piece inspired uh, with the words of Langston Hughes,
Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, symposium on the lifetimes and contributions of uh, Anna Julia Cooper. Uh, discussed uh, some aspects of her uh, life as an educator, as a writer, as a public intellectual, and also uh, as a Pan-Africanist. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this uh, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, March the 12th. 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with our concluding segment uh, for this week. This is a man's world. This is a man's world, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be nothing, nothing without a woman or a girl. You see, man made the car. Take us over the road Man, make the train To carry the heavy load Man, make the electric light To take us out of the dark Man, made the boat for the water Like Noah made the ark. This is a man, a man's world. But it wouldn't be nothing without a woman, a woman or a girl. Now listen, man thinks about little bitty baby girl. Baby boys, man makes them happy, cause man, he makes them toys, and after man has made everything, everything, everything he can, you know that man makes money to buy other man, but this is a man, a man's world, but it wouldn't be nothing, nothing without a woman or a girl, I said he's lost, lost in the world of a man, oh yeah. This is a man, this is a man's world, oh yeah This is a man's world Hey 
Nothing without a woman Or a girl This is a man's world This is a man And this is a man's world I know and you know This is a man's world This is a man's Nothing without a woman or a girl. Ah, without a woman or a girl. This is, this is, this is a man, a man's Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Etta James uh, with the track uh, entitled This is a Man's World, made popular uh, by James Brown uh, back in 1966. And uh, right now we want to present our final segment uh, for uh, today. This is another uh, audio file uh, featuring Anika Prather uh, discussing Anna Julia Cooper. Uh, Let's listen in. And she would um, engage in discussions with her students that may, it was not just about um, memorizing and regurgitating to pass a test, but she made these students think. She made these students see their, their, their equal humanity. This was really important because, like I said, she was a slave, and her students were also most likely oftentimes former slaves, of course, until she got older. Um, and But what she was doing was taking them on a journey that was similar to hers, where she was using the text for them to learn about who they were as human beings. Hi, this is Tony Williams, Senior Fellow at BRI, and we are pleased to bring you another episode of Scholar Talks. And this one is on the series we're running on Black intellectuals and the African-American experience. And we're honored to have scholar Anika Prather, who's going to discuss early 20th century Black educator, Anna Julia Cooper. The guiding question for this series is, what contribution did this person make to understanding the Black experience in America? And Dr. Anika Prather is dedicated to teaching the classics and is the founder of the Living Water School in Maryland has taught at Howard University and is currently teaching at Messiah Messiah University. She is the author of Living in the Constellation of the Canon, The Lived Experiences of African-American Students Reading Great Books Literature. Anika, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so excited to be talking about Anna Julia Cooper is, you know, I knew a little bit about her, but to prepare for the interview, I, I read a lot about her and, yeah. uh, and and by her, and she's just an incredible figure, a very, very interesting figure and, and, yeah. and really important, uh, and I'm glad that uh, we we agreed to talk about her. Yes, yes. Great. And so, person to talk about. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, so... In my research, I, I, I found that she, Cooper, had a lot to say about first principles and human nature. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think she really believed that people of all races and sexes are born equal. Mm-hmm. They have reason. 
and also very importantly, human dignity. Yeah. And, and that we can only fulfill those ideals and aspirations of American democracy when we recognize that common humanity, yeah, or rights that we have. Am I on the right track? Can you tell you us are, a little bit more and, about Cooper? Yes, and I mean that actually is what makes her very unique in comparison to some of the other activists of her time. Um, she was very truthful about the Black experience, but all of her arguments and essays were headed towards a path of um, racial healing and unity. Like she wanted to bring American citizens together. She was also very proud of being an American. Um, there's a quote that she says, um, she says, I know something along the lines of, um, I cannot help but um, have so much hope for my country. And to be a woman in the 1800s, late 1800s, probably, yeah, it's probably late 1800s when she made that, that statement, early 1900s at the, at the latest, um, to say it during that time, just out of slavery, had been enslaved all her life till she was 10, um, probably had seen so many things. She is the daughter of the master um, who had nothing to do with her. She had every reason to be very jaded in her thinking. But in her writings, you see a real love for her country, um, while at the same time being able to speak out in truth about her experience and the changes she'd like to see. I find her to be a good example for me. It's very easy to fall into a pattern of anger or bitterness or, you know, and, and, and coming from that place. But when I read her essays, I find an example for speaking on things, but at the same time headed towards a space of um, um, loving your country and wanting what's best for it and, and hoping for the best for your country. That's really incredible, right, to have that sense of hope, even though she's suffering under the double yes. burdens, really, of both segregation as a Black yes. woman, but also yes. as, as a woman as well. So yes. um, very, very interesting. Yes. And she was a, an accomplished and, and very well-educated high school teacher and also college professor, eventually mm -hmm. got her PhD yes. uh, at traditionally what we would call traditionally Black institutions. Yes. And she dedicated her life to education for Black people, including Black women. Yes. And so what was the purpose and importance of education, not only for, for Black people, but then broadly for, for all humans? Yeah, I, I think she looked at it as a way to build bridges with each other, right? Um, and she was always doing things to cross those color lines, while at the same time staying true to her community. Um, like if you were to compare her to Booker T. Washington, who was also a great educator, their language is very different. Booker T. Washington, although we respect him, we respect the work that he's done, we respect the fact that he came up from slavery, he is a good example in that, that regard. His language is one of just settle, like accept your place in American society. Eventually, it'll take care of itself, so just accept your place and, and try to get along. Anna Julia Cooper felt like, no, we're going to push those boundaries. We're going to push the color line. We're going to push the gender line. I'm going to tell you the truth about what, what it's like here, why it's not right. But um, I am going to still respect the space that I call home now. Another way that she um, sought to kind of um, cross those color lines, she was, like I said, she was, I feel like, a real strong advocate for building that bridge across the color line and gender lines. Um, and one example you see in that, too, is um, she got her Ph.D. Um, she, stepped, she went to one HBCU, which was St. Augustine, but then she got her bachelor's and master's. She finished up her college work and got her master's at Oberlin. 
Then she got her PhD at the Sorbonne in France. And so you see that pattern? She's constantly, she got it. And then she would get these things and go right back to serving her community and then showing how to build a bridge from her community to everyone else. And so as you see that constant back and forth, and she also mastered that in her love of the canon. So in most of her essays and speeches that you read, she makes numerous references to the works of the canon. Sometimes she's, you know, quoting the Tocqueville or, you know, whoever. And so she is constantly engaged in the great conversation with these authors. And she's an example of it. She does it so beautifully, so clearly, almost as if she's saying to the reader, to her students, whoever would listen or read, watch me. Now you follow what I'm doing. And how do I know that's her thinking? Because there's a quote that she says, no one but the black woman can say when and where I enter, right? Well, feminists typically take that part only and leave it there. Only Only the black woman can say when and where I enter. But there's more to that quote. It, it continues, no one but the black woman can say when and where I enter and wherever I go, I'm kind of, you know, summarizing and wherever I go, the whole Negro race enters with me. If you don't say that last part, it becomes a very self-centered, you know, you know, one's going to tell you what to do. I'm all about my progress. But that's not what that quote means. It was about, it wasn't just about women's rights. It was about human rights. And she's saying, you're not, basically, you're not going to stop me. I'm going to pave this way for everyone who comes after me. And what is that path that she's trying to pave? That path that bridges all Americans to come together, brings them together. And she believed that that work could be done um, through classical education. She was very distraught when she saw Booker T. Washington's philosophy of more industrial education. Um, Booker T. Washington makes a quote basically saying, you know, it's a waste of time for anyone to study Greek and Latin and to read these texts and you don't have a skill. Um, Anna Julia Cooper felt skills were necessary, but she also felt all of us should have this exposure to classical learning because it provides a way for us to dialogue with each other. It is a, it is a common language that we can share with each other because it, it, it reveals a common human experience. Most people in early America were educated classically. So she felt it was a way of connecting all of us, not just accepting your place, not just accepting your place behind the veil, as Du Bois calls the veil. I sometimes think he means the color line. But she said, we can break through that. And, and you can't stop me. And I'm bringing the whole race with me, not to overthrow you, not to hurt you, not to tear down America, but we're coming because we're equal to you and we're going to work with you to make this country a better place. That's just a a great segue to to my next question. And and by the way, is it okay to feel inspired as you're talking about this? She's she's very inspirational. I I love it. Um, Yeah, she was. So so Cooper discussed the importance of of educational and and economic opportunities as well, specifically for for Black women, who, as we talked about, suffered under that double burden. And so what, what role... You alluded to it with your quote, but but what role did Black women play in in improving the lives of all African Americans? And also, how could they help regenerate the larger American culture and politics broadly? You know, I I keep referring to the kind of the misunderstanding feminists have with Anna Julie Cooper, and it's not because I have anything against feminists. 
that's not, well, I don't want anybody to mis- misunderstand. I just feel like she's being misrepresented or misappropriated. Um, and her, she was very interesting because she was also a very traditional woman. She, she saw black women, all women, because sometimes she would go back and forth between talking as if she was talking to all women, uh, but that, which would include a black woman. And then sometimes she would go and say, and I'm talking to you, sister, you know, so she was, so, and the way she saw women were, were to be the, like the nurturers of society. She saw us as being the keepers, the cultivators, the nurturers of society. We're the ones who kind of hold the fort down and keep everyone together and keep everyone inspired and nurtured, you know, in our hearts and our bodies, caring for society. And um, she talks about how a society is made up of homes and homes are made up of families. And at the center of that is the woman. The atmosphere of homes is no rarer and purer and sweeter than are the mothers in those homes. A race is but a total of families. The nation is the aggregate of its homes. As a whole is sum of all its parts, so the character of the parts will determine the characteristics of the whole. These are all axioms and so evident that it seems gratuitous to remark it. And yet, unless I am greatly mistaken, most of the unsatisfaction from our past results, past results arises from just such a radical and palpable error, palpable, palpable error as much almost on our own part as on that of our benevolent white friends. So that, again, expresses her role in family. It's not that you don't do careers, but it's that you never forget your place as that center of the home. So that's, that's her um, thoughts on women. Now, this is interesting for a woman who was, a, she was a widow. She never remarried. She was a widow by like 21, never had children of her own. Um, and she, um, but she still saw the value of women in the home, caring for the home, caring for her children, caring for her husband if you're married. Um, and then she says those pods of families are what make up the larger society. They are the ones at home nurturing the child, helping that child become what they're called to be, releasing that child into society. She places a great emphasis on that. It's not just about being the career woman. Um, At the same time, she felt that if you are a career woman, you can still fulfill that role wherever you are. And we see her live that out because even though she was not married and had no children of her own, she used her home as a nurturing place. I mean, people were allowed to live there if they were too poor, and then she would educate them. If they were illiterate, she used her home as like almost a boarding school. Um, when a college, um, the, the, the Freelinghausen University, which, was a, which is like our first example of a community college, she was the president of that college. It was meant to educate older Blacks who were still illiterate, you know, still fresh out of slavery, and they would get educated classically, but also learn a trade. When they came on financial hard times, at the time she had this beautiful home in Washington, D.C., she ran the school out of her home and even willed her home to the university. So what she felt was, I'm a career woman. I'm making good money in all of my um, adventures, 
And I'm going to use this to continue to nurture my community, the people in my community, which will in turn bless others. Freeling House and University is not even named after a black person. It's named after a senator who um, tried to stop Andrew Johnson from ending reconstruction. And so that university is named after him, a white man. And here she is working for this university named after him. She very much believed in this partnership between the black community and the white community. And she felt white women, I mean, black women, their role was to help nurture that relationship, to nurture her, their own people, nurture that bridge between the two, do their part to serve alongside her white uh, co-citizens of the country. And so she saw them just definitely as just kind of this um, nurturer of human society and that even if you do have a career outside of your home, it is used to come back and pour into your own community and ultimately pour into all of society. You know, we talk about civic virtue a lot at, at BRI, and it seems like she not only believed that society was knit together by these civic virtues and, and citizens practicing civic virtues, but she often practiced them herself, as yeah. you mentioned. Yeah, she even opened up her home to foster children. I think at least 10, she at least raised at least 10 children at some point. And these children, she would educate them classically. They'd go to college, and then she'd give them a job in whatever school she was a principal of. And they became teachers, and they would carry on her vision for education. She was just really amazing. She's becoming more remarkable as this, this interview unfolds. I, I love it. Um, so, so how did Cooper um, tie individual development of, of intellect and character in education to the common purpose, right? That common purpose of citizenship and, and working together to establish a just and, and, and civil society and, and good relations among all. I really think she, I mean, her biggest tool was classical education. That was her mode. Um, She taught a lot of her classes in this kind of Socratic dialogue um, where her students were exploring, especially the ancient texts. Most of her classes were taught in Latin. And she would um, engage in discussions with her students that it was not just about um, memorizing and regurgitating to pass a test. But she made these students think. She made these students see their, their, their equal humanity. This was really important because, like I said, she was a slave, and her students were also most likely oftentimes former slaves, of course, until she got older. Um, and, but what she was doing was taking them on a journey that was similar to hers, where she was using the text for them to learn about who they were as human beings. And then helping them see, how can I serve? Oh, there's a quote. I wish I could find it. Um, where she talks about this is the purpose of education, to train up them to see how they could serve in their own, in the country. And, um, and that is the whole duty of man, um, to serve God and to serve their fellow man. And then she would use the reading and discussion of the classic text to illuminate that for them. So what happened as a result, most of her students that she had would graduate from high school and go on to some of the top schools in the nation. Oftentimes, they would be the first black student in whatever university. And they would come out and serve society. And it was, she almost saw herself as like, it was like almost this machine of citizens. She was constantly doing the work 
to create sentences. Now, and she's also really important because she's very different from Booker T. Washington. I'm kind of glancing at this quote. But um, she was very different from Booker T. Washington because she's doing this, though, without teaching them to feel subservient, or without teaching them to forget their heritage, and without teaching them to be, um, to assimilate. Assimilation is not the goal. The, the goal is integration, which means I'm bringing who I am, my culture, my narrative into the American narrative. I'm not hiding it, but I'm showing you how this narrative can support the work of the country. And that is, that's the kind of education that she provided. Now, this quote is kind of long, but I really want to read it. I want to read it. And I, I couldn't find a part to leave out so you can see the full picture. And she goes, the Negro has had manual education throughout his experience as a slave. That is her explaining why Booker T. Washington's thinking about industrial education may not be the answer. She, so, again, she says, the Negro has had manual education throughout his experience as a slave. For 250 years, he was practically the only laborer in the American market. His training was whatever his teachers decreed it should be. His skill represented the, represented the best teaching of the section in which he found himself. If he did not reckon a knowledge of machinery among his accomplishments, it must be admitted that machinery was very tardily introduced into the Southland. But his methods as a farmer, as a mechanic, as a nurse, as a domestic, were the result of the best teaching the peculiar institution of slavery afforded. What was the lack? What is the need today? Is it not just the power to think? The power to will, the power to appreciate true relation, which have been enumerated as the universal aim of education? The old education made him a hand, solely and simply. It deliberately sought to suppress or ignore his soul. We must, whatever else we do, insist on those studies which by the consensus of educators are calculated to train our people to think, which will give him the power of appreciation and make them righteous. In a word, we are building men, not chemists or farmers, or cooks, or soldiers, but men and women ready to serve the body politic in whatever avocation their talent is needed. So that, and then she says, that is fundamental. That quote is everything. I mean, in that one quote, see, she was, she was alive and, and functioning and being an activist for education at the time that Booker T. Washington's popularity was rising. And that quote basically dispelled the myth of, why don't we just focus on industrial education? That would not only keep Black people from being elevated, and it's not that we have the goal of making them elevated above other races, but just elevated out of the low place they were in. And so um, so she's saying we don't need to just train. They, they already have training. Most of them can do a skill. That's what they did as slaves. But they were not taught to think for themselves. Everyone was making the decision for them. They weren't taught, and when she said, to serve the body politic. They weren't taught to contribute to American society in the political arena. They weren't taught to have a seat at a table where discussions were happening, where decisions were being made. And so she's saying the education we give our people should be preparing them for that type of life in America. And she also talks about it should also help to make them righteous. It should build up their moral standing. 
we've come, it's still a lot of times that we've gotten very far from that vision. It's about doing the test, filling in the blanks, and just passing the scores. And the character of, of children is not developing. The mind, the ability to think critically is not de- developing. And the ability to see where we all fit in this big, giant human story. It's not happening anymore. And, and Anna Julia Cooper, even though she's long gone, I wish she was alive. Oh, gosh. I believe it's, it's to read her again is to call us back to those former things. Are, by, by the way, are, are there particular uh, essays or books that, that the, the students or viewers should, should really read by, by Cooper? I would get um, this book called The Voice of Anna Julia Cooper. Um, it's put together by Charles Limert and Esme Bond. Um, you can get it on Amazon, and it includes her book, A Voice from the South, as well as other letters, poems, essays, speeches, and a lovely biography on her. It's, it's I mean, mine is falling apart. It's such a, a, an important resource to knowing her. This is really important because she was a very private woman, and it's really hard to know her, but if you read this, you will have a strong sense of what her journey has been, what her philosophy was, what her thinking was. Great. Anika, final question. How does Cooper advocate specifically uh, the best path on, on how Blacks are going to confront racial prejudice and, and white supremacy? Uh, and what's the best path forward for, for struggling and, and achieving equal rights and, and dignity, respect, and justice in American society? There are two parts to this answer. Um, I believe she would still want us to keep having the dialogue where we're truly telling our experiences, our narratives, as she um, demonstrates for us in her writing. She never holds back words in expressing what her experience is and how things are still unfair. We need to have those discussions. Then she also doesn't feel we should wait around for someone to change our circumstance. We have to go after our goals for herself. There was a, she has this um, thing that she did where she would call the first step, the second step. She wrote these goals. And on this step, she would, the final step was her getting her PhD. She wrote an essay on it um, or a poem, I think, called The Final Step. It was right after she got her PhD. I'm sharing that as an example because she said, on the one hand, yes, you're going to hold our leaders accountable to making sure they are holding up to the promises of the Constitution. But they move kind of slow and they're a little resistant. So don't just sit around being angry about their slowness to fix that. You have to aggressively pursue your goals, aggressively push through those boundaries, those cut that color line to achieve equality, to achieve all of your goals. And that is what she wants us to learn, but not to do one without the other. And then finally, all of that is in service to our people and to humanity. Great. Anika, I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your insights into this remarkable figure of Anna Julia Cooper. And thank you all for joining us uh, on this episode of Scholar Talks. Please check out our next installments of Black Intellectuals and the African-American Experience as well as our previous series on the presidency in the Cold War and our upcoming series on pivotal battles in American history. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. 
And uh, that was uh, another uh, analysis and reflection on the work of uh, Anna Julia Cooper, who lived uh, in the United States uh, between 1858 and 1964, uh, born in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, lived for many years in Washington, D.C., and, of course, being an educator and a major uh, political uh, and theoretical figure uh, in uh, African-American as well as uh, Pan-African studies. And that is going to conclude our program for today. We'll continue with our International Women's History Month uh, series uh, in our next uh, program. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, March the 12th, uh, 2023. All you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of Shirley Scott uh, from the album entitled Now Is the Time. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.